Well, it's uh, encouraging to look out at all of you and know that I'm not the only one who chickened out Bloomsday this year. Now, if you were reading along during that second scripture reading, we are going to be in Colossians 2, 16 through 23, so open that up. But the first thing that should grab our attention this morning is that our text begins with, therefore. As we have been exegetically working through the book of Colossians, we have been seeing the early church body dealing with some false teachings that have arisen within their ranks. Now, in the first part of chapter 2, we see how there were those who were being taken captive by plausible arguments, by philosophies and empty deceit. And the thing about these arguments is that they were attractive. They were captivating. They promised greater knowledge and, and greater godliness. However, these philosophies lead to nothing and are of no advantage in the end. We see in 2.23 that these things have an appearance of wisdom, but are of ultimately no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, uh, appearances can be greatly deceiving, can they not? I mean, how many false truths or heresies have we fallen into simply because they were dressed up and had an appearance of wisdom or an appearance of spirituality? Now, Solomon Northup was a black man who lived in the height of the African slave trade in the 1800s. He was born a free man and lived in New York with his wife and three children, he had an education, and he also was an exceptional fiddler. Now, in March of 1841, Solomon was offered a paid position amongst circus performers as, as a fiddler as they traveled south to Washington, D.C. He accepted this offer, and upon arriving in D.C., he was drugged, knocked unconscious, only to awake a prisoner who was later sold into slavery. And he remained a slave for 12 full years until he was finally able to get help and regain his freedom. So to no fault of his own, Solomon Northup was captivated by the empty deceitfulness of the two men who recruited him, which led to him becoming a captive. And this is the weight of the therefore at the beginning of our text today. Paul is speaking about these philosophies and how captivating they are and how they result in spiritual captivity. Paul states, see it to, that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And this is where our text picks up today. So Paul proceeds in this in verse 16 through 23, to confront, confront three captivating philosophies that threaten to take the church captive. The first one being embracing shadows. Embracing shadows. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, this talk of food and drink and festivals and Sabbaths immediately points us to the Jewish tradition. And those holding to these Jewish customs 
are using the Old Testament law as a means to earn their own righteousness. And in turn, they judge those, they are judging those who do not do the same as them. And so why, why would this be a captivating teaching? I mean, in the Colossian church, yeah, I mean, they're still transferring into the new church um, out of Christ's work, life, death, and resurrection. Um, but why would this be a captivating teaching for us today? I mean, as far as I know, the Old Testament law is not something that we here at Christ Redeemer Church are, you know, tempted to engage with. It's not something we're typically drawn to. However, we need to realize that the core issue here is that they are relying on tradition and they are relying on ritualistic patterns to bring them closer to God and salvation. Ultimately, they think that they can earn it, that they can do it by doing these things, by following these things. And there we actually see the appeal. It puts salvation into clear and relatively understandable terms. If you follow the rules, then you will be righteous. Yeah, like it, that, that's plausible. That's a logical conclusion. You do the right thing, you'll be righteous. I mean, that's how our world kind of works in general. If we follow the rules, we are good. If we break the rules, we are bad. It is in this way that is such a captivating teaching, for it is familiar we naturally gravitate towards this as a default. And, but the free gift of grace and love that Christ poured out on the cross for the sake of us rebel sinners, now that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us within our, within our confines of this world. The very notion is kind of foreign and bizarre, like we're, we're evil, we're wicked, yet you still love us and give us grace. That... It, doesn't really feel right in some ways. But within the structure of the law, it makes sense why we would or would not receive grace. If we are good, we get grace. If we are bad, we get judgment. We are comfortable with the logic, and therefore we are captivated and held captive by it. And perhaps that is the very same reason some of us come to church, perhaps. We feel that habitually coming will somehow balance the scales of good and bad in our, in our favor. And that maybe we feel that if we just follow the Ten Commandments to the letter, then surely God will show us favor. However, Paul refutes this claim by stating that all of these laws, all these rituals are mere shadows of things to come. And the substance actually belongs to Christ. And we see this in Hebrews 10, and the author gives a perfect example. He explains how animals that were sacrificed for the cleansing of sins were ultimately a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, one time, once and for all. And therefore, since Christ fulfilled the law, people no longer have to sacrifice animals. And the same can be said of all these festivals and laws. They are embracing the shadows and are rejecting the substance. Think of a married couple who live apart from one another. The husband keeps a photograph of his beloved spouse and looks at it often with great fondness and looks at it with great affection. But once he is reunited with his wife, he looks at the picture. He looks at his wife. He looks at his picture and says, you know, I'll just stick with this instead. I'm, you, you're, you're good. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stick with this. 
Like his wife is right there. The fullness of her is right there for him to embrace, for him to enjoy. Yet he chooses to latch on to a mere image of her. What foolishness this is. And that is what these individuals are advocating for, for the Colossians to embrace the picture of Christ instead of Christ himself. And so we must ask ourselves here today within this body, what are the laws, what are the rituals, what are the the shadows that we are tempted to rely on? What are the things that we place our confidence in to save us other than Christ? And are we missing out on the fullness of Christ as a result? What do we think earns us his grace? Now, this brings us to Paul's second captivating philosophy, which I'll refer to as leveling up. Verse 18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So here we find a type of early Gnosticism and mysticism, which was pushing forth this idea that in order to reach true knowledge and understanding, you must go through certain spiritual experiences or you must go through lesser spiritual beings in order to make it to enlightenment and secret knowledge and obtain those things. In other words, they are embracing a type of spiritual ladder where God and enlightenment are up here, we are down here, and we need to work our way up in order to get there, in order to get to the top. And that is where this idea of sensuousness and worship of angels comes into play. The sensuous man relies on the next spiritual experience and is trying to earn righteousness by increasing their spirituality. And this can sometimes be seen within the Pentecostal church today, in which there is a heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues and prophecies and visions. I remember... Uh, being at Moody, we had a guest speaker come years ago and and told us students that if we have not spoken in tongues, that we have not truly been baptized by the Holy Spirit and therefore are not on the spiritual level we need to be at. And because we had not experienced the same level of spirituality, he was claiming it definitely felt like a put-down in that he was viewing those who haven't spoken in tongues as lesser Christians. And when it comes to the worship of angels in our text, we actually you know, see something similar in, in the Catholic Church. The people today, or in the, in the text, were worshiping angels, trying to get closer to God through angels. But in the Catholic Church, it kind of takes the form of dead saints and Mary, where they ask these deceased individuals to pray for them because they view these saints and Mary already in heaven, so therefore they're closer to God. And so they are working up the chain of command, so to speak, to get to God through their prayers. And so the core issue here within this captivating teaching is that worshiping, is the idea of worshiping the next step or worshiping the next level or seeking the next level instead of worshiping and seeking Christ himself. Now, why, why would this ideology be captivating to those in the church? Why would that be captivating to us today? Well, how many of us love step-by-step instructions to success? We love those. It, it's the same idea. I must reach the next level so I can be closer to God, more enlightened, 
separating things into steps gives us a better sense of control. It seems like practical, like, oh yeah, I can see, I can do this. It gives me something to, to work towards. And above all, it feels measurable because when you obtain it, you feel like, yes, I did it. I did it. I obtained it. It's measurable. I, I am therefore greater now. And this frame is, is also kind of naturally familiar to us. So think of a large corporation. An entry-level grunt worker does not simply go straight to the CEO. No, they go through a series of supervisors and managers and directors in order to get to the big boss up top. But this is not the case with Christians. We have full direct access to the CEO, God himself, through Christ, by the Spirit. We don't need to level up. We already have a direct line to him. So those who are relying on their own power to work up the spiritual ladder are missing the point. Ironically, they are trying to level up spiritually and gain the secret knowledge in order to grow closer to God and or enlightenment when the truth is, is that one must cling to God in order to grow spiritually, in order to have this knowledge through the Spirit, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2. That is what Paul means when he says in verse 19, not holding, and not holding fast the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joint and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They seek the growth and knowledge, yet they do not hold fast to the one who provides the growth and knowledge. They've willfully spiritually decapitated themselves from the body. They have willfully separated themselves from the nourishment and the growth that comes from Christ because they're like, no, I would rather do it. I can do it. I'm going to do it. Paul says in, in verse 18 that those who belong to this philosophy are puffed up without reason. And the reason being that when they reach the next level, there's a tendency to develop a spiritual arrogance which causes them to look down on those below, on the levels below them, and disqualifying them, saying, no, 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 you have not found the truth. You have to reach my level first. You have to get here first before you actually know, before you're actually saved, before you have actual knowledge. And now we might not be able to resonate a whole lot with the idea of being puffed up by, or rather, seeking these visions and worshiping angels. However, we can easily resonate with this idea of being puffed up spiritually. I know I, I myself you know, I have often felt fall, fallen into this mindset. There's been seasons in life where I'm consistent in prayer and reading my scripture, and then it kind of develops this spiritual pride of like, wow, I'm doing a good job. Wow, I'm spiritual. I'm such a good Christian. This is awesome. And then I come across someone who doesn't have that same habit. I'm like, oh, oh, you, you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You got to be more like me. That's something that we can resonate with. That's something that we can connect with more. We become puffed up. And we can contrast this idea of being puffed up versus the idea of being built up. Colossians 2, 6-7 states that those who receive Christ are to cling to him, to walk in him, and be built up in him. Those who are built up in Christ, as Carrie mentioned, are like buildings whose foundations go deep and are solid, and they are firm. Yet those who do not hold to Christ and those who become more puffed up 
in their spiritual arrogance are less like a building and more like a balloon. If you want to know the difference between a building and a balloon, simply stick each one with a pin. The building is steadfast and unmoving. It's going to be completely unaffected by a mere pin, yet the other is nothing more than, than contained hot air. It's empty, it's faulty, and it's subjected to every whim of a breeze. Their houses are built on the sand and not on the rock, which is Christ. We must not be captivated and be held captive by this philosophy, for it pulls us away from our beloved Christ, who is the head and who produces spiritual growth, which is from God. It pulls us away from our root and foundation. And so we must ask ourselves, what are we looking to other than Christ for growth? How, we, how are we attempting to level up by our own power? And in what ways do we find ourselves being spiritually puffed up, looking down on others who don't seem like they're on our level and disqualifying them? Now this brings us to the third captivation that Paul brings up, which is gaining by abstaining. Gaining by abstaining. Look at verses 20 through 23 with me. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, put simply, the core issue here of this teaching is that by abstaining from certain things, people can gain righteousness and favor with God. Now, Paul's opponents are following these strict regulations that do not permit them to touch and eat certain things, believing that completely cutting these things out of their lives will bring them closer to God and make them appear more spiritual, to be more spiritual. And the reason this teaching can be so captivating to us is that it makes us feel more clean and more good than what we actually are. By not doing outwardly evil things, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are not depraved human beings. I recently talked with a guy in a hot tub <laughs> about this. Uh, he, he is not a believer and he was expressing to me, well, if God and heaven are real, if they're real, then he will see that I've done good and I haven't done bad. I've done more good than, than bad. And so, like, I, I will go to heaven if it's real. And so I, in turn, asked him, well, would you ever cheat on your wife? Uh, he responded, oh, of course not. I love my wife. I love my wife. And so I, I asked him, in turn, do you ever look at women other than your wife lustfully? Does that ever happen? And he said, I mean, sure, yeah. Well, I pointed to Matthew 5, 27, 5, 27 through 28, which says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He then exclaimed, well, if that's the case, then I'm the biggest adulterer in the world. 
like, yeah, he, he kind of got it. I got excited in that moment. Like, yes, you get it. You get it. The issue is with the heart. Even though this gentleman abstained from, from sex outside of his marriage, he abstained from it, he most certainly was not clear from guilt of adultery. Yet even after that conversation, he still believed that he was a good man who would find favor with God if God was real. He missed the point. And many of us have a tendency of falling into this, this same mindset, that by simply abstaining from these evil things that we will gain this righteousness. But let's ponder for a moment what Jesus says in Mark 7. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Our very hearts are the issue. Our very hearts are the issue. For that is where these evil things come from. It's our hearts. Simply avoiding, consuming, and engaging with certain things physically does not solve the core issue of sin and uncleanliness in our lives. Yet, a distinction must be made between abstaining from things for the sake of following arbitrary rules, thinking that it makes you clean, we have to make a distinction between that and spiritual discipline. Asceticism, which is what we're talking about, is a replacement of the gospel, while spiritual discipline is a response to the gospel. Now let's just use alcohol as an example. There are those whose lives have been severely impacted by alcohol either directly or indirectly, and they choose to abstain from it, knowing that it is a stumbling block for themselves or others in the faith. And that is a wise discipline to have. That is a good thing to lay inside in order to run the race well. However, for someone to abstain from alcohol for the sole purpose of making themselves appear more clean or holy and look down their noses at those who don't follow the same standard, that is when it becomes a problem. Oh, we don't drink alcohol. I don't drink any alcohol at all. That's bad. But you, you do? You drink alcohol? <sighs> For they're using, an, using abstinence as a means to gain a moral high ground in those situations. It's not in response to the gospel. They're doing it in placement of it. That is the difference between spiritual discipline and asceticism. One is a response. The other is a Replacement, And we actually kind of see that with the Pharisees. When they were fasting, they would make a show of it. Be like, oh, yes, I'm fasting. I haven't eaten in days. Oh, look at me. I'm so faint. And, you know, doing that, you know, they just had this appearance of spirituality. But we know that they were spiritually dead. And we are tempted to do this with all sorts of things in our lives, like entertainment and perhaps television or like this is one I've observed here and there is, is even schooling for kids. Like your kids go to public school. <gasps> no wonder they're like that. <laughs> Just 
And some people throughout history and in the world have even gone so far as to cut out marriage and sex from their lives completely. We see that in various priesthoods and monasticism here and there. And we even see some cut out modern technologies and modern medicines and institutions like we see in the Amish tradition. They think it's evil, so they completely cut it out thinking that it's gonna develop this spirituality that's gonna make them more clean, more holy. And the thing is, is that these kind of take on an appearance of spirituality, like the Pharisee fasting. Oh yeah, he appears spiritual when he does that. Or the, the monks that are hidden away, like, oh yeah, they seem so spiritual. But, but it's false. And the thing is that abstaining from things is not inherently bad, but it becomes wicked when it becomes a means to gain righteousness and favor before God and to condemn others. They are relying on the precepts of the world and not on Christ to justify themselves. Which is why Paul brings this point up in verse 20 by stating, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you still submit to regulations? With Christ we have died, past tense. It is something that has happened to us if we are believers. Well, what, what does that mean? And what does it have to do with submitting to the regulations as if we were still alive in the world. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed that to have died with Christ means to now be dead to the reign of sin and rather alive in the reign of grace. He paints a picture of, of two fields. One field is the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the world. That is the kingdom we are all once were a part of, or perhaps still are a part of. And then over here, we have the field of the kingdom of God, which Christ transfers us into. And there is a fence in between these two fields. Now, if we have been transferred into the kingdom of Christ, into that field, the rulers of this field, the rulers of the world, Satan and sin, no longer have authority over us, for we have been delivered from that domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ. No longer citizens of the world, but citizens of heaven. Because the kingdom of darkness no longer has reign over our lives, those rulers can no longer touch us. They are not in authority over us any longer. There is an unmovable fence between us. They cannot get to us. But what they can do is that they can shout across the fence. Have you guys ever done that with neighbors, like you're just shouting across your neighbor from a fence? Now, that, for that exact reason, that is why we still experience temptation and fall into sinful actions. We listen to the, voice, the voices that once held us captive that cry out with tongues of deceit, and they draw us into sinful behavior. But since they are no longer in authority over us, we don't have to listen. So... Why do we? Why do we still listen? Well, let's go back to the example of slavery in the antebellum South. There were many slaves who had been in slavery for the entirety of their lives. For the, their whole lives, they were slaves. And so even after the abolition of slavery, they still had these instinctual reactions to their former masters. They would quake and tremble out of fear of being beaten or sold by them. But in reality, they, those old masters no longer had any power or authority over them. 
They didn't have a need to fear them, to tremble over them, or to listen to them. And that is a point Paul is making. You have died to the rule and authority of sin and Satan and the world and are now alive and completely filled in Christ. Yet we still experience the temptation to submit to our former masters. We forget that we are free from them. And we have to remember who our new master is. So submit, therefore, to Christ and cling to him, and not these earthly regulations, for he has freed you. He has cleaned you all the way down to your very heart. He has cleansed you all the way down to your core, something that regulations could never do. Regulations could not do that. But Christ, he has done that. So, what are the regulations we are tempted to rely on for our righteousness outside of Christ? What are the temptations the enemy throws at us from our dwelling place that we tend to submit to and rely on and to fall back onto? Do we find ourselves abstaining through things thinking that will make us more holy, or are we doing it out of response to the gospel? Now, all three of these teachings are based on the works of man. They're all based on, I can do it, I can do it, I don't need Christ, I can do it myself. And we are tempted to be led astray by the legalism of shadows, the sensuousness of leveling up spirituality, and the asceticism of earthly regulations. But what happens within Christ's body when we fall captive to these philosophies? We begin to cast false judgment and to disqualify one another, behaving as if we were still alive in the world. One commentator commentator says this on the matter. The philosophy within the Colossian church was emotionally elating, ego-inflating, and worst of all, brother-berating. Carrie mentioned last week how these teachings were arising internally. They were not these outside assailants. Do we here today, do we in this body find ourselves engaging in this same behavior, judgmentalism, and questioning the salvation of others based on arbitrary standards? If so, then we might be becoming captivated captives to the very same false teachings that the Colossians are facing in our passage today. Do we have a tendency to make false judgments on our brothers and sisters? Do we have the tendency to look down on them and question their salvation because they don't seem as spiritual as us. However, what is the body supposed to look like according to Colossians 2, 2 through 3? It isn't supposed to look like a social club of judgment and disqualification, that's for sure. Rather, it's supposed to be knit together in love. We're supposed to be knit together in love. Why? To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These Judaic mystic philosophers claim to have access to true and secret knowledge through their practices. Yet we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the secret and hidden wisdom of God is only revealed through the Spirit. For no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of 
God. And that same indwelling spirit is who knits us all together in love under Christ's headship and gives us true knowledge and true growth. Knowledge, growth, and salvation does not come through us. It comes through Christ by the spirit. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regards to shadows. Let no one disqualify you, insisting that you are not sufficient and that you need to level up. Let no one tempt you into submitting to these regulations of the world, abstaining in order to gain justification. For Christ has done all of the work already. He is the one who fills and qualifies us. He is the one who is preeminent over all creation and declares us righteous before God. That righteousness is not something we can earn. It is something that is given to to those who are rooted in Christ. So cling to him, cling to Christ, not laws, not regulations, or other spiritual beings and sensuous experiences. Cling to him. They are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We are of no value. They are of no value in keeping us from sin. Only Christ within you can do that. Only the spirit within you can do that. We cannot do it. He has done it, and he continues to do it. We need to cling to him, not these things, not ourselves. There's a reason why Paul does not use up the entirety of this letter to meticulously pick apart the, the precise false teachings that are circulating within the Colossian church. This little portion of chapter 2 is all we get. This is all we get on it. These are the, this is the most specific counter we get. Rather, what does Paul focus all of his energy on throughout this whole letter? Let's, let's zoom out, look at the whole letter. What does he focus on? He focuses on the knowledge of the truth of Christ and the hope of the gospel. For Paul knows that there will always be false teachings show, showing up, taking different forms and tempting us from every angle. He knows that. He knows that that's going to happen. But he also knows that the best way to combat every single one of these things, every single one, is not to be aware of all the little ins and outs of our opponents or the trickiness. No, Paul understands that the best way to avoid being taken captive by these false teachings is to understand the fullness, the fullness of the gospel and being knit together as the body of Christ. That is how we prevent ourselves from being taken captive. We cling to Christ, but we don't do it alone. We do it knit together as this very body. So as a body this morning, let us cling to Christ together. Let's go out there, Bloom's Day Sunday, and let's minister together in love. Not judging, not disqualifying, no. Clinging to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are so holy and beautiful and wonderful, and you have showed us such incredible grace. Thank you that you have done the work. And I ask and praise that you will convict us to cling to you, not trying to do it out of our own power, not trying to do it by our own strength. We are not strong enough, but you, the God of all creation, you have the strength, and you have done it. Amen.